Okay. It's right, it just turned 7.01. So <clears throat> let's pray and um, then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for the day that you have given us today and that you've been with us. Some people have dealt with difficult things. Others seemed like every other day. I thank you, Lord, that you promised us you are always with us and you are nearer to us, you said, than our own hands or feet. So we are grateful that we live and move in your presence. Guide us tonight, I pray, in our discussions and study of the scripture that we would always know the truth and discern it and follow it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last week we started off our study on Christian ethics. Um, most of the time was spent on introducing the um, ethical issues that we want to look at. And I should, rem I should remember that it's not just ethics, it's Christian ethics. Technically, everybody has an ethical system by which they function. It may be, the cra it may be crazy. It may be evil. Um, it may be um, contrary to Christian, Christianity, but it's still an ethical system. It's a way that they determine um, what is right and wrong. Really, ethics is the study of what's right and wrong. How do you come to those decisions? And what are the fundamental values by which you operate? Okay, there's some people who um, there is a system of ethics that eventually or basically says there are no values. Okay, but that's an ethical system. There are no absolutes, but the minute you say there are no, none, that's an absolute. Um, a lot of people like to live as if there weren't any hard, fast rules. And so you just kind of go with the flow and do whatever. Um, <clears throat> but that leads to, of course, confusion and chaos and so forth. So we're looking at ethics from the standpoint of um, the Christian religion. And, of course, the basis for that is Scripture. Now, I'm not a heretic, and I don't want to get people thinking that, you know, I'm some horrible liberal and, you know, whatever. If the Bible... i got to really be careful here that, that I don't mean what I may sound. If the Bible was absolutely transparently clear on every single little ethical issue day to day to day, we wouldn't need a class. We wouldn't really need, we wouldn't need to pray about stuff. We wouldn't need to seek God's mind. It's so clear what to do in every single case that it's already there. Yes. Hebrews talks about, and we, that verse came up last week. Hebrews talks about 
having our, I'll paraphrase it a bit, having our discernment sharpened and focused better, dialed in through use, the scripture says, to discern good from evil. Um, All evil doesn't always look evil. All that we think is good may not be good. There are certain um, rules by which we discern rules, okay? Um, Ways to look at things, um, checkpoints. So what we're looking at, um, I got some good ideas from last week of subjects to um, study that I hadn't thought of. And then um, just today, I got a, um, an issue that I hadn't thought of at all. The whole ethics of <clears throat> in, in vitro fertilization. The advances medically that, that, and some wouldn't call them advances, but, you know, in you know man's mankind's ability to bring about pregnancies artificially or aided somewhat artificially um, from a a couple struggling with that very good question and she in an email just concisely um, put to me the, the things she'd like help with. Um, so <clears throat> there are then some gray areas or some difficult areas. Um, on the things that God has said to us that are crystal clear, they are non-negotiable, they are essential to salvation, they are so clear that we cannot avoid the clarity of them. We know what they are. Um, there, there's a definition, and I don't want to get off here, but there's a definition of inerrancy or infallibility of um, Scripture that includes the words for all that's necessary for salvation. The, the scripture contains, it, it, everything that it affirms is true. It's infallible. It's, it's without error. But not everything is included in the Bible. God's given us enough to know about Him, about our condition, and about salvation. There's much more. John even said that. John said if everything Jesus said in just three years were written in a, in a book, the world couldn't contain the books. We know then that we have a selected amount um, of information that God's given us in Scripture, enough, enough to follow Him and make it to heaven. But there's other things that sometimes are either unrevealed to us, we'll find out in, in eternity, um, or others that are briefly touched on. So, <clears throat> anyway... 
Before we get into what I want to look at it tonight, that we've got a whole list of, I think, I think we've got um, 16 or 17 different subjects, okay? Um, and I think we've got about 17 uh, Wednesday nights until May, and we're done. So <clears throat> uh, we'll have to keep moving. Let me say this to you, too. Some of them, maybe even what we get into tonight, won't be very interesting to you. Um, Others, I hope, occasionally will have a, a lesson that's interesting. Um, but there are, there are lots of different kinds of ethical um, issues. Um, I will just read the list that we came up with last week, and then we'll start. Um, <clears throat> what's the Christian's relationship to the civil um, government? How involved are we to be? What's our uh, interaction there? whole business of war versus pacifism, all social responsibilities. I'm not talking about political here. I'm talking about feeding the hungry and, you know, I hate to say the word social justice because of what that means, but there the ills that we f confront in society. What's a Christian's responsibility there? Um, all of the sexual laws that God has laid down, sexual mores, um, abortion, and um, in vitro fertilization. Euthanasia, suicide, capital punishment, um, all of the addictive um, substances, tobacco, alcohol, drugs of all kinds, you know, what, what's the deal with all that? Uh, gambling, <clears throat> ecology, responsible use of natural resources, which God, frankly, has quite a bit to say about, the care of the earth. Um, he's not a climate change person, uh, so or a tree hugger. But at any rate, it's it's his world, and he made it. And he said, "Don't do certain things to it. Don't wreck it." Loving our enemies, be they political, moral, family, whatever it might be. Um, how do we, on the ground, deal with situations that we face when we go to work or when we go to? family reunions or the wedding of a niece that's going to marry another woman. You get an invitation. What do you do? Employee, employer. Really, the scripture doesn't say a lot. It does, well, I shouldn't say that. It does. But more often, it speaks to slave and master. But there are principles there that still apply. Um, what do we do with civil laws that we are starting to see crop up in our country that restrict um, or, or coerce certain religious um, practices or <clears throat> expression, denying it or demanding it, um, that cross Christian values? What, what, do, we, what do we do there? Um, The Bible, and this is what we're going to look at tonight, so I hope that you know, you'll put up with it. Um, the Bible has quite a few things that um, sometimes in the old, but also in the new, uh, directly address behavioral issues. Um, we could put them into, some are dietary, some are um, dress, appearance, some are um, <clears throat> function or office, 
Some are accepted public decorum. Um, do, do they still apply? Now, um, we'll get in, we'll, we'll start into that. <clears throat> there are a fair amount of, and I'm not talking here about the Ten Commandments, the Big Commandments. <clears throat> there are three kinds of laws in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. This is, you really need to remember this, and we really have to distinguish. There is what is called, what are called the civil laws. I think everybody can understand that. The civil laws in at least America, Western civilization, <clears throat> are, are largely, even though they've eroded, largely based on Scripture. Um, honoring your neighbor's property. A reimbursement if your ox goes and eats up his field. <laughs> um, the kinds of fundamental um, behaviors of society that have punishments, penalties, and so forth. Most of those civil laws in the Old Testament we really have adapted and live under today. There's some that we don't, but um, at any rate. Second, <clears throat> there is ceremonial law. Now the ceremonial law was really all a part of the religious worship and it was a massive list. And Peter said that, Peter called that huge list a yoke that our fathers could not bear. Now, he wasn't criticizing God. The ceremonial laws were temporary. They were fading away, but they were pointing to the Christian dispensation. All of the laws about don't, don't eat this, don't look like that, whatever, don't be like the heathen around you, have to do with spiritual distinctness. Um, down even to, God even dictated to the Israelites um, how they wore their hair. You ever read where he says, don't round off the corners of your beard? He said, don't, don't shave off the sides of your, your hair to the men. You're going, what in the world? Here's one too, and here's one I want to nail every one of you here. How many of you have ever boiled a baby goat in its mother's milk? Okay? The Bible says, don't you do that. Well, you, you say, What? Well, if we know a little bit of the background, the heathen would take a baby goat, boil it in its mother's milk, and which is a cruel thing in the first place, but then they sprinkled that through their orchards and so forth because it was supposed to be some kind of, um, you know, it would make the gods happy and the apples that grow really good that year. Um, so there are principles behind some of these, even though we may not understand them or practice them. Now, um, <clears throat> the fundamental question then of both old and new that we have to ask ourselves with a lot of the commandments are, are they timeless? 
or are they temporary? Are they meant to illustrate something that is yet to come? Or are these to be observed forever? So we have the civil laws. We, many of those we live with today. I'm thinking, I think of one uh, that was civil law. Now there were moral repercussions if you didn't obey them. But civil law was every time you made a loan, you knew that in, at the end of six years, at the seventh year, you were going to forgive the balance. How many of you want to sign up for that? Um, you forgave all debts. And then big debts, different debts, debts that involved your inherited land, the tribe of Judah's land versus the tribe of Benjamin. At the end of 50, or in the 50th year, year of Jubilee, all property reverted back to its original owner and you start it all over again. So, we don't have that law in our civil law, okay? We've let that one go. There's some others that we do. Ceremonial law, where all of the things about cleanliness and unclean and clean animals and what you should eat and what you couldn't eat. And depending on your adherence to that law, the ceremonial law, it had to do <clears throat> with whether you could go to the tabernacle or the temple and be qualified to enter and worship. That had not only, that was, while that was ceremonial, it was religious. And you were disqualified um, if you went to the house of God and tried to offer a sacrifice or worship while being in an unclean state. Okay, now, what would be an unclean state? Well, one was a dead body. If you know, got up in the morning in the tent and grandma was gone, <clears throat> well, you took her out, you buried her, you're unclean for seven days. And in some cases, some of those cases, you had to stay outside the camp because if you came into your own tent to the guy next to his tent, he's unclean because you're unclean. That's, all of that were some principles of teaching that God is holy. And we, there's a qualifying sense that we have to have to come into his presence. Um, now, the third law is the moral law. They're civil, ceremonial, and moral. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, and all of the, if you want to call them, footnotes to that. Jesus summed it all up as love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbors yourself. He said, on these two hang the whole, the whole structure. Now, We are no longer bound to the civil law. Doesn't mean it's not good, and doesn't mean there aren't good things, and doesn't mean we don't have some of them. We're not bound to that. Second, we're not bound to the ceremonial law. I don't have to, and this is, this is one, this is how meticulous it was. You get up in the morning, and there's a dead bug in the cereal bowl. That's in the scripture. What do you do? It depends. If it's pottery, you break it. If it's wood or metal, you wash it 
in you know clean water and you can use it by the next day because then it's clean okay um, now <clears throat> those things because you were ceremonially unclean you couldn't go to the temple and pray because if you went ahead and ate in a bowl that had a dead bug in it when you got out in the morning, okay? We're not under those anymore. When people then read often in the New Testament, we're not under law, but we're under grace, they throw out all three laws. Oh, we're not in a law. We don't have to keep laws. We don't have to. Obedient works, it's work salvation. No, it's not. Because I'm obligated to keep the moral law forever. And fulfilling the spirit of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, love your neighbors yourself, so forth. That is the heart of salvation. And so when we when we say, and when Scripture says, we're under grace now, grace is both mercy, but it's also enablement. And God enables us to actually, really love Him with our whole hearts and our neighbor as herself. Once He's done a work in our heart, freeing us from sin. So the moral law is always intact, and it is timeless, and it is by which we'll be judged. Ceremonial and civil are either passed away or much, much of the ceremonial law is fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament and the, the New Covenant. Jesus now is our Passover. We don't have to, every year, have a Passover lamb and eat that and get leaven any yeast out of the house we don't because Jesus fulfilled that Passover law now it's so now it has moved into a fuller revelation and we no longer do that ritual yeah yeah the the Yes, but it depends on, frankly, it would probably be an extremely small fraction of today's Jews because you've got, you've got what's called Reformed, which sounds like they shaped up, but it's the opposite. Uh, reformed are quite liberal. You have the Orthodox. You have e the even um, different uh, groups within Orthodox. You know, the guys with the little spit girls. Um, they are, they are just one of a number of hyper-law-abiding um, um, uh, Jewish believers. But many of them also have, they've incorporated a lot of, of just kind of bizarre stuff. Um, personally, I, and I'm saying nothing against if anybody of anyone here has or wants to do a Passover, you're not, you know, you're not going to go to the hot place for doing it. But don't invite me, okay? Um, I'm not remotely interested in it um, because I've read even the rituals. 
and it's it's taken on a lot of almost um, spooky stuff, um, kind of just weird stuff. I don't I don't know how to describe it. Um, that reading it, I thought I'm going to be reading basically Exodus, you know, where it was where the Passover was instituted. It's got all kinds of stuff about. It's literally a notch away from. You know, um, the cow jumped over the moon stuff. Um, seriously. So I, it was nothing like I expected I would see. And it's pretty divorced from Scripture. Um, anyway. <clears throat> so some, some things in Scripture are timeless. Some have been fulfilled by Jesus. And therefore not binding any longer. Though the principles behind them may, of course, um, still be binding. Now, um, let me skip a little bit of this. Um, well, are the, I mentioned that you're not to do a lot of different things because, Jesus, or because Moses and, you know, the revelations from God said, the heathen do this. The heathen boiled a kid in the mother's milk and sprinkled in the orchard. Um, there were certain things that the heathen did. They would um, cut themselves and, and scar themselves intentionally in, as a sign of mourning. And God told the Israelites, don't do that. Don't make cuttings on yourself. Don't, you know, do weird things to your hair as some celebration to a god or in suffering or in whatever um, because the heathen do often he was because the nations round about you do this don't you do it you're different you're different you're different you're different you're holy not like these people now you we you have to avoid an uppityness um, which god won't tolerate but the we don't have to worry anymore about laws that say you can't cut your hair a certain way. Okay? Except don't dye it green and all that kind of stuff. But the principle of differentness back of the, all of those laws, that's timeless. There's to be a difference between the way the world acts, looks, and so forth, and the way we do. We're different. He said, you're my children. Don't you do the things that the heathen do? Okay? So that, the principle is timeless. The practice of that principle either goes away or changes to something different. Does that make any sense? Now, <clears throat> How do we know if something's timeless or something is something that we read in Scripture I no longer um, have to abide by? How do we figure that out? Anybody? Scripture, as much as we can, um, and Scripture often can tell us that um, Jesus has fulfilled that. So that particular practice is no longer 
Not that it was a bad one, but Hebrews does use the word frequently. Probably the most uh, frequently used word in Hebrews other than and and a is better. There's a better covenant, a better high priest, better promises, better sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. Really gets it's detrimental to our relationship to our neighbor yeah. or our relationship with God. Mm-hmm. That's, those are the things that we have to avoid. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I think, um, it wasn't a bombshell statement that John Wesley's mother would always tell him. Um, what, whatever cools your affection for God to you, son, that's sin. Avoid it. So we're still keeping the moral law when can I love God with all my heart and do, say, think, practice X and fulfill the law to my neighbor to love them as I love myself. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty good rule. Yeah. Is sin, yeah. And so uh, that, that, that the water a little more. I mean, you could be wrong on something. <clears throat> between you and God, and you break it. Then... Everybody know what the reference is to uh, Romans 14. Romans 14 says some people observe the Sabbath day in a certain way. Other people basically treat every day as a Sabbath day. There are some people who said who will eat meat offered that has been offered to idols. And Paul counted himself as someone who could. He said, I can eat meat that has been offered to an idol. And then after it was offered to an idol, they took it down to the open market and sold it there. And it would be marked as, you know, instead of beef from Iowa or whatever, it was, you know, dedicated to whoever. Some god up the hill, okay? Um, well, there were, there were Christians who said, I can't, I'm not going to eat that meat. Now, a different thing, bigger issue, simpler to settle. I'm not going to go to the very feast itself where they serve that meat up in the temple. I don't belong up there. That's an easy one. But what about the meat that was offered to the idol that wasn't, that wasn't consumed by the priests, wasn't burned on an altar, and it's left over, and so they bring it down and they sell it in the marketplace. There were some Christians that said, that's been, that's been offered to an idol, and I, I, I just don't feel that I can eat it. Um, Paul said other people's, people do, and he said of himself, he said, an idol is nothing. It's a fantasy. It's a figment of imagination. So he said, I like a medium. But, back to the rule, he said, but if, if uh, eating this meat troubles and offends and unsettles the weaker brother who doesn't want to eat it, he said that I won't touch meat as long as I live. There is deferring, in a sense, to the conscience of someone else for their sake, 
so that they're not turned away somehow. Okay? Now, um, what about... That was a big one with um, the early, real early Christians still in Scripture times, New Testament times. That was a major one, not the only one, but that was a major one. Um, I don't want to get too narrow too quickly here and get off the track, but what do we do with... um, Well, two things. Number one, how do we understand and discern what the early New Testament church did, specifically in Acts 15, when Gentile believers, uh, Gentiles were flooding into the church as brand new believers, and the church was quite the church at large. I mean, Christianity in the Mediterranean basin was rather quickly... Um, ceasing to be a Jewish peopled religion and rapidly becoming by the second generation a Gentile church. They were, there was a huge issue that could have torn things, really torn them up. The first major virtually only Gentile church was Antioch in what is today Syria. And they turned to God. Barnabas went down there. Peter was there. Paul was there. And um, in fact, the whole Roman world came up with the name Christian at um, Antioch. It's where they were first called Christians. Okay? And that became a missionary sending place. They're the ones that sent out Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. Um, So Corinth then, or I mean Antioch, was really disturbed by some people that came down from Jerusalem who were Jews and told the Gentile converts in Antioch, if you don't keep every sentence of the Mosaic Law, that's back to bugs in the cereal bowl in the morning, or a running sore that you have that you got to go live out outside of town. Uh, all of those dietary, all those laws. If you don't keep every single one of those, you can't be, a, you can't go to heaven. You're not, you're not, you know, you're not right with God. Well, the 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 Scripture says Paul and Barnabas. Um, had, uh, the King James puts it this way, they had no small dispute with them. I, I'm confident, because this was an essential matter, that there were some veins sticking out in Paul and Barnabas's neck, especially Paul. We're not going to put up with this. These guys that came down from Jerusalem were not sent by the apostles, took it upon themselves, and we're going to have it out. So, Acts 15 is a call for all of the apostles and the elders in the church to meet at Jerusalem and settle the issue. And they did. They settled it. 
and wiped out all of the ceremonial law and said, the Gentiles that are becoming Christians only need to do four things. Just four. Avoid fornication, meaning, and the word there is, is a broad word for just sexual immorality of whatever kind. And that was very prominent in all the heathen worship and all through the Roman Empire. Um, so avoid that. And it says, avoid things strangled. Okay, That is um, butchered and cooked without draining the blood out of it. They said, still continue to avoid that. Partly was that that was just I, wildly um, offensive to the Jews. And they weren't interested, the apostles weren't interested in trying to offend the Jews and drive them away from becoming believers in Christ. Don't, let's don't provoke people, sends them off the deep end. God, though, said, don't eat the blood because it is for my altar. So they kept that. Then, <clears throat> what was, I, what, one of them is, I can't remember all four of them. There's only four of them, and I can't. I can remember, remember three of them. Um, somebody look it up in the very tail end of Acts 15 while I'm talking about the third one I do know. Um, it's a difficult one. Because after saying, don't eat the blood, don't think, eat things strangled, the fourth one is avoid blood. Now, there's disagreement over what that means. And my opinion is um, dealing with dietary treatment of blood or something like that already got covered with the second one. So I vote with the commentators and the people who think it literally means, obviously, don't commit murder. Don't get involved in anything that would be detrimental to life. Okay? And then the third one is what? Somebody got it? Those are three? There, I thought there was four. Yes, yes. So, that one appears to conflict with what Paul said in Romans 14. I believe also, there are no contradictions in Scripture. So, I think what he's talking about is attending those feasts and or eating meat offered to idols that would be offensive, as he said in Romans 14, to a weak, conscienced believer. Okay? That's... Now, they never excluded love and God with your whole heart and your neighbor yourself. That still is the pinnacle law. But this, yes, these are, these are ones that were somewhat by Romans 14, they're obviously debatable. They're obviously to each person's conscience. And um, 
were clearly said to leave each other alone. He said, don't you guys, you guys that don't eat meat offered to idols, do not judge the one who does. Yeah. You know, interesting, uh, Romans 14 again, uh, he says not to make your brother stumble and make yeah. cause him to fall. But the other side of he says, do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. So I think you have the offensive proselytizers, you know, the, you, I'm doing this, you need to do this too. I got <coughs> my bumper sticker and my tattoo and you know, all the different things they were into. And at that point, you know, I think Paul would shut them down. Which, which gets right into the thickest of ethics and the gray. Let me give you an illustration. I've told you before, and I don't need to regale you with all kinds of stories. <clears throat> I was raised, interestingly, um, I grew up in what was called the holiness movement, believed in entire sanctification, clean heart, you know, and so forth. Um, but I grew up in the Methodist. I wasn't spe specifically a Methodist. Um, my dad was started out as a Methodist preacher, um, but was in the Methodism stream of the holiness movement. Okay, Does that make any sense? You completely lost. I went to. Uh, my dad didn't get invited to all over the, literally all over the country to preach at camp meetings in Wesleyan churches, Pilgrim Holiness churches, Free Methodist churches, denominations. Um, so, and we'd go with him when we could. And almost every single one of those were, now they considered, they were, they considered themselves righteous and holy and all that, I considered them, and my dad considered them, legalistic. To this point, um, my mom was an absolute saint, okay? She had more religion than most people I've ever met. She loved God with all of her heart, kindest soul you, but she had a little bit of an independent streak, okay? We would go to these camp meetings where you literally, we would, I have seen them, little tracts that are given to people, little, you know, these little tracts. One of them was entitled, Loophole to Hell. Do you want to guess what loophole to hell is? The wedding band. Wearing a wedding ring. God help you. Because it's the putting on of jewelry. My mom also had short hair. 1 Corinthians 11, by these people's standards, would send you on a rocket ride to the hot place, okay, if you cut your hair. Because it's a glory to a woman, okay? Mom would leave her wedding ring on and have her hair short. And wasn't going to bend. Dad would, my dad was probably way more verbal. I mean, he really go off on that stuff. Yet, in some ways, he contradicted himself because also putting on of jewelry, I'm making none of this up, is a tie clasp. If it's got silver. Or, God have mercy if it has gold. 
And even worse, if it might have some little glass diamond in it. Okay? I have been there. Okay? He'd get a black bobby pin from mom and he'd take his thing off and so because he said, well, I don't, I don't want to just be intentionally belligerent. Um, okay? There are whole denominations that make an issue of that's just a smattering of the stuff that you have to deal with. God sent me as plain as day for two reasons. A, get me out of Eugene, Oregon with um, the friends I had and to meet my wife. He sent me, clears a bell, to a dumpy little town in Iowa to a Bible college primarily to get me away from my friends and to meet Liz. And I don't think intellectually it, it benefited me at all. They had some pretty lousy teachers. Um, in fact, I got there having been saved a month. I'm getting off here, but I, I had been saved a month. The Pentateuch teacher, Pentateuch's first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch teacher was going to be gone for a week and they couldn't find anybody else, so I taught the class for a week on the Pen on Pentateuch, okay? And I, now I grew up in the church and a parsonage, so I knew a lot about God and the Bible, but I'd only really gotten it in my heart about a month earlier, okay? That's how pathetic the intellectual level, academic level, that school was. Um, there were, at that school, that I endured for, for three semesters, there were any number of ways you could go to hell immediately, okay? One was tossing around a football on Sunday afternoon. It's Sunday. And the, even the worst thing is you had to, you'd, you'd have to take off your suit that you were required to wear all day Sunday in order to throw a football around so you could go directly to hell. Um, that's enough. Liz had long straight hair and she'd been saved about six months and she was a, don't tell her I said this, sitting cross-legged in the park playing a guitar, California hippie, okay? And so she shows up back there. And immediately, those of us who were from Oregon and California were suspect, okay? Um, she had long, straight hair. And the women's dean would catch her before she walked out of the women's dorm on the way to chapel or class or whatever the case was. And she had an unsharpened pencil and she'd come up to her, and she'd, she, she would come up to her and take that pencil and run it by her ear and then pull her hair out to see if she had the devil stirrups on. Do you know what the devil stirrups are? Earrings. No eye makeup, you know, no, no whatever. 
that, that doesn't fit in Romans 14. Meaning, I wouldn't put up with it. That's a position that is damaging, it's pharisaical, it's legalistic, and I don't have to knuckle to that. Their conscience is fouled up. So I don't have to let their conscience govern me. Um, and what helped me there was the way I was raised. Um, I mean, you, you walk with God, you're a thorough Christian, or that's it, you're, you're out, okay? I mean, it was 100% or forget it. But I go to this school where I find out you haven't got any religion if you throw a football around on a Sunday afternoon, but I knew nobody had any more grace than my mom and my dad, especially as, as a preacher of the gospel. And I would sit in Sunday morning and listen to him along with all the kids in the youth group and you know we had altar calls and we'd go to the altar and may, or maybe we didn't or whatever eat dinner real fast water ski all afternoon out of Fern Ridge Lake in Eugene get cleaned up just in time to come back for youth Sunday night at six o'clock okay that's what a Sunday was to me then I go to a place and find out, you throw a football on Sunday, you go directly to the hot place, you do not go fast, go or collect $200. I don't pay attention to it. Um, I'm really getting off, but I gotta tell one more quick story. My dad was on the board of this college and the president of the college couldn't stand him uh, because he didn't kowtow to any of that kind of junk. And so anyway, I show up there. Um, it was the last day, finals day, in January. I came from Oregon. Coldest I'd ever been in was 12 above. I get there, it was 17 below real temperature in the middle of Iowa. Um, had nothing to do because they had like two days of finals. So I went, put my sweats on, went down to the gym. Totally empty. And took my sweats off and had a t-shirt and I ran track for I don't know how many years just running shorts and you know track shoes or whatever and shot baskets by myself just shot baskets kill some time I don't know it was a little bit out of the way someone there saw me I, they probably passed out in the snow, and maybe the snow itself revived them enough so that they could stagger their feet and go rat on me and tell the president that I was, as they hyperventilated, I was shooting baskets wearing shorts, tr track shorts even. Well, I didn't know anything. I go back. I get hauled in by the dean of men. I get taken into the president. I get chewed on for wearing track shorts because it's, I don't know, but wearing track shorts. And I was already, not even started school yet, I was already in trouble. So my dad calls, wanting to know if I got there, you know, because I hadn't called him. 
And he said, how's things going? I said, well, I'm in trouble already. I said, I got called into Dr. So-and-so's office because I was wearing track shorts to shoot baskets. He didn't say a whole lot. Three, four days later, I got called into the president's office again. The president's there, kind of a mousy little guy, and he, he's shaken. He's so mad, he's shaking. And he's got a letter that looked like my dad's handwriting, okay? All he did, he just said, among a few, I don't know what all, but I do remember these lines. The next thing you and that bunch of old maids at that school will do is make a rule that babies can't be born naked. <laughs> that was, signed it, <laughs> okay? I stayed in trouble for the next three semesters. <laughs> um, So I knew that world very well, but wasn't raised in it, and, and saw the other side, and saw the, um, the damage that, that comes from that kind of ethics. And you know, I, I had, I don't know how long it's been, it's been maybe a year, two years. Obviously wouldn't describe who was, well, anyway. But a person from this town, good woman, came into my office just and just wept. Can't ever get to thinking that she is okay with God, that God's happy with her. He loves her. He favors her. She, her heart's right with him, has peace. She was raised in exactly what I've been describing. All of her, till she was in her 20s. She was raised in that. I've talked to her a few times since. She still, I think, she, she's going to be okay with God. But she will never get victory over thinking she's wrong. She's not living right. She's not keeping the rules because of that kind of... Um, legalism so this ethics thing is a real question I mean it's a it's a real issue to figure out what do you make an issue of what do you let go what do you leave somebody else to do what do you stand up for what don't you stand it this is where kind of the rubber meets the road now um, <clears throat> let me <clears throat> We'll never solve this one. But there's something that we, what do we do with, especially the New Testament? Now, I think all of us can understand that the food laws and those kinds of things, those are gone away. They're fulfilled in Christ, so forth. But in the New Testament, we have um, several pretty strong commands, it seems, or practices um, that involve the status and the place of women. Um, I was just talking to a person, I don't, it hasn't even been two weeks, um, not agitating about it, but really grappling with 
What do you do with the fact that Paul said women are supposed to keep silent in church? They're not supposed to teach. Okay? They're not supposed to teach. They're not to have authority over a man. Um, And what do we do with that? Now, I think I've got an answer, but I just throw it out there. Yeah. Long hair. And so actually he drank. But either way, uh, it changed. It, when the Old Testament, it was, a, it was like holy and like super pure. And if he cut his hair, he was like, he was about going to the hot place just for that. And yet, by the time the New, New Testament comes around, it's a disgrace to have long hair. And that goes back to just the cultural time that they lived, you know. You know, things were just <coughs> different then. And okay. So you introduced a term, cultural. So the big issue, ethical issue, is when Paul said, I don't let women teach, I don't let, and so forth. Um, Is that cultural? Or is it a timeless precept? Now, I take the position that it is cultural. It, it was how is the Christian church going to display itself to the world? And the place of women then, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, <clears throat> a woman should cover her not only with long hair, but she should have a covering over her head to show that she was under God and under her husband. And he says, if you don't do it, she might as well have her head shaved. Well, people read that and they go on. They don't know what in the world. Prostitutes, especially temple prostitutes, but prostitutes in general, women, were marked by shaved heads. Clear up, clear up into um, World War II. I've seen pictures of women collaborators um, who Nazis accused of collaborating with allied soldiers, and they all marked them by shaving their heads. Okay? But in, in Corinth, to whom he was writing, and in the cu- culture there, um, if you were a woman of ill repute, and you behaved in a in an, um, reckless, brash kind of way, you were acting in their minds like a prostitute. You might, so Paul says you might as well shave your head. Now, but here's where we have to... I, I, I've been in some situations where people were willing to pull a church out of a denomination if they allowed women to be commissioned you know remember the the ordination service we had here with Tanner you do that with a woman 
even if it's to be children's pastor or whatever else, I'm leaving the denomination. It's not, it's not biblical. God's wrath will be on us. I don't even get that. But when did Paul tell women that they're supposed to have their head covered? This is not really a twic, uh, you know, twist on things or a tr uh, trick question. When did he tell them? Hear me. When you're up prophesying. When a woman is standing up in the congregation prophesying, she should have her head covered. What's prophesying? Preaching. And what did Joel in the Old Testament say that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost? Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And I'll pour my spirit out on all, all flesh. Okay? We have then, we have a problem. Not a problem. Well, it's, a, it's an apparent one. I'm going to use the word apparent. But you have Paul saying, I don't let women speak in church or have authority. Then he says, when they prophesy, make sure your head's covered so you're culturally unoffensive. Okay? Well, how do you resolve that? You can't resolve it by saying, just taking one thing that Paul said and ignoring either side. We've got to figure out what's, what is he saying? What is our position? I think it comes down to this. There are clearly cases in Scripture where God used women as leaders. Deborah is one of them. Deborah was one of the judges. And think secularly. Um, I wouldn't mind a president like Margaret Thatcher or Golda Meir, if you remember her, in Israel. I'd take one of them like that. Um, God plainly used, in many cases, used women. So what's Paul talking about? Why is he saying, I don't let him talk in church? Here's what was going on. The Jews had a practice that only men could speak out in church, and that included even when the synagogue leader was maybe leading worship or whatever. They would interact. They would interrupt. So people would be sitting out here, and they would maybe raise their hand, or they might just speak when the preacher's preaching and say, wait, wait a minute. What about this? Or what about that? Or I think you're wrong. The Jews were absolutely aghast that you'd ever let a woman do that. Men could, women couldn't. The Gentile Christians mingled with Jews. It's apparent that at least in Corinth, some of the women got to doing the same thing that the Jewish men 
felt comfortable doing, which was interrupt the preaching and ask some question or discourse or disagree or whatever, okay? That is what Paul was addressing when he said, keep silent, and then what he went ahead and explained, he says, if you got a question, ask your husband when you get home or when you get out of here, don't interrupt the preacher. That's all he was talking about. And then I think, especially older versions, when they said, I do not, he said, I do, do not allow a woman to teach. The King James Version uses this, or usurp the authority of a man. The word usurp is the key to understanding that. It's a, a sneaky, subterranean, insurrectionist way of um, insinuating themselves into a situation to um, attack the authority, either of the leader of the synagogue, in case of Jews, or the appointed pastor, or whatever. It's not merely a woman just saying, let me, you know, it's testimony time, I'd like to tell you what Jesus did in my heart last week. I'm not talking about that. He's, the word usurp is cunning, agitator, potstirrer, which applies to men, too. John said, Diotrephes in a certain church loves to have the preeminence. He says, when I get there, I'm going to deal with him. Okay? This is a very current, very present, up-to-date issue that divides um, much of Christianity. Catholics are still grappling with will they ever ordain Minister, women as priests. Um, Anglicans went to that earlier. Uh, a lot of the conservative, more um, Baptistic churches are, uh, they're just anathema. Uh, women are not on the board of the church. They can teach up until, seriously, they can teach up to about sixth grade, Sunday school. And women, God bless them, they need to keep silent in church. But you know what? If they're single moms, they can tithe. We'll take their tithe. Just keep your mouth shut. And volunteer for the nursery. Because we're not going to go back and change diapers. It's, I don't like it. Um, some, we have some wonderful women on our church board that have good sense, good opinions. They love God. They pray. He actually talks to them. Okay? Um, but that's a huge issue today. And it's divisive. Um, and I'm clearly on one side. Now, here's... Then I gotta quit. But I was assigned 20 years ago probably now. I was assigned when there was a push in the evangelical church that we were a part of then uh, to ordain women. And I didn't know exactly where I was at on it. I can see, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I was assigned to study all of the like-minded sister denominations that believed the, the Methodist doctrine um, if they ordained women. I found Church of God 
Church of God Anderson, Free Methodists, Nazarenes, Wesleyans, you know, and there was, there was 10 or 15 denominations. I got all the statistics on them, do they ordain women and so forth. The evangelical church that we were a part of then was the only one of all of those different denominations that would not or did not ordain women. Um, no, I didn't lose any sleep over it. Um, but, you know, I was trying to figure out what, what's the position that we ought to take and that I should recommend after doing this study. But the interesting thing that I did discover, and I don't know what to do with this, so as soon as I get done, then we'll dismiss and, you know. All of the churches that, all those denominations that ordained women were also on what's called the call system. A superintendent didn't appoint the preacher like I was used to. The congregation called someone, they candidated, and then they voted yay or nay on them. Every single one of the denominations that ordained women also had that form of government. Okay? Every single one of the leaders, superintendents, whatever else, of those groups that I talked to said, we ordain women, but we cannot get congregations to call them. Very few. They just don't feel comfortable. They're happy to have them be speakers. They're happy to let them, do, you know, whatever. But as far as being a senior pastor, they, for some reason, hesitate. And so it's difficult for us to place. We have more women ordained than we have accepted into churches to pastor. I never know, I don't know why that is. They didn't know why that was. Um, yeah, it gave fuel to the fire and the guys in our denomination that didn't want to ordain women. Um, so some people then settle on this. Women can speak in a, in a role as prophetic, tell what God's done for us, open up scripture, teach. I don't know how many of you, it's been a while since Gary and Becky Manis were here as staff members. Gary, excellent preacher. I don't think you can find anybody a better Bible teacher than Becky. Uh, whether men or women teaching, I mean, she's excellent. Okay? In our church, of course, it's fine. We didn't worry about it. But there are a lot of denominations that wouldn't have let her done it. Um, there are people then who say, in the role of temporarily a teacher, temporarily maybe being a missionary and presenting things, they, she, she could do that. But in the office, they make a distinction between a role and an office. The office of ordained pastor of such and such a church, we don't think that they should fill that office. That aligns with what Paul said, that they can prophesy, but they're not to be in authority over. Um, so that's where things stand today. 
a role? Okay. A, occupy an office like a priesthood? No. Um, that's one that's never been figured out so far by Protestantism, especially at large. So that's one you can think about. Um, <clears throat> so in some cases we are not doing what Paul said. Some cases we are. What's the ethics of that? That's that is ethics. It's not all black and white sometimes. Okay, it is black and white that the kids are probably about out. So before they go off the deep end, we better pray. Father in heaven, it takes thought and study sometimes um, to understand what is best and what is, what is the good and maybe not even what is evil, but what is good or better. Help us to be people of the word and always remember to lay alongside as a ruler whatever we decide in any situation. Does it enhance loving God with my whole heart and my neighbors myself? Keep us as we go, we pray. Bring us back safely, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I apologize for telling too many stories. Um, getting us out of here late. Anyway, hopefully we'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs>